let me begin this reflection by saying something obvious. Uh, obvious, but I think not inconsequential. Life does not take place in a vacuum. It occurs in something like a habitat, an environment that is physical, emotional, uh, spiritual, psychological. And what I'm concerned with here, of course, is our spiritual habitat, our spiritual environment. When we talk about the human condition, we are attempting to describe that habitat. We are attempting to describe the kind of environment in which human life takes place. A way of describing one element of that environment, one way of describing the human condition, is to say that human beings live in a sea of values. Unless they are suffering from one of the most two uh, destructive and pathological of all psychological or spiritual disorders, sociopathic or narcissistic personality disorder, people everywhere have a sense of right and wrong, of fairness and justice, an awareness of good and evil. In a famous BBC talk, C.S. Lewis said that this sense of right and wrong furnishes us a clue to the meaning of the universe. Here in this podcast, I would say it furnishes us with information about the human condition. In, I think, 1996, I was invited to a conference in Seattle exploring the topic of the Church on the Pacific Rim. At that conference, there was a great deal of discussion of church work along the Pacific Rim in the context of the emerging postmodern era. I remember being told that the postmodern world thinks about things quite differently than the modern world that preceded it, and I think, by and large, that is true. For example, one of the things said at that conference was that in the postmodern world, people no longer believe in absolute truth, in absolute right and wrong, as they once did. Although I have no specific data to back me up, I suspect that that is simply not true, at least not true in any absolute sense. Whether people are religious or secular, there are no social issues they debate, whether abortion or gun control or minimum wage or race, to name just four, without arguing from the perspective that there is some principle of right and wrong, some moral principle greater than themselves that validates their position and that can be assumed as the standard, that can be assumed as true. This is true in even rather trivial, everyday matters. People are always getting upset because someone slipped in and took the parking spot they were waiting for, or because someone cut them off on the freeway, or crowded in line, or didn't keep a promise. That's not fair, we say. How could you, uh, how would you like it if someone did that to you? But you promised. C.S. Lewis noted in Mere Christianity that in each case, 
we are appealing to a standard outside ourselves which we expect others to know about and to follow. And in defending themselves, people don't say, where did that rule come from? Or I don't think that. Instead, they come up with some reason why in their particular case, the standard doesn't really quite apply. I repeat myself then. We exist in a sea of values like love, courage, hope, mercy, loyalty, kindness, honesty, peace. And every failure to live those values diminishes us and hurts another person. The injury we do ourselves and others may be relatively small, but its corrosive effect is progressive and cumulative. At this point, <clears throat> it is probably best if I take up and use that word which for our generation is uncomfortable and somewhat objectionable. I'm thinking, of course, of the word sin. The significance of sin, it seems to me, is not all that well understood by many popular theologians or psychotherapists. Its significance has often been exaggerated by illiterate preachers, con artists, swindlers, and self-righteous shills, and its meaning grossly distorted, primarily by either fearful people or by those seeking power and control. As one British psychoanalyst noted, it is a common experience in psychotherapy to find patients who fear and hate God, a God who is always snooping around after their sins. As a consequence, a child may grow up fearing evil rather than loving good, afraid of vice rather than in love with virtue. Unfortunately, many children who are taught mistaken ideas about God and sin are never able to overcome those distortions. But some do. I, I love the story of the Roman Catholic priest, William Berry, the Jesuit and spiritual director and priest, who tells about his mother as she was dying of cancer. He asked her what God was like, and she replied, God is a lot better than he's made out to be. Her own life of simple, but deep prayers, devotions, and worship had taught her something very different about God than what she had heard in many sermons and in a lot of religious talks. The word most frequently translated as sin in the New Testament is armatia. It literally means to miss the mark, like an archer who releases an arrow from his or her bow only to have the arrow miss its mark by falling short of the target. Seen in this way, sin is not about some neurotic self-loathing, self but rather about recognizing how we consistently fail to live up to the best that we can conceive, how we fall short of thinking and acting like the people we really want to be, Sin, according to one dictionary definition, is a failure to realize in conduct 
or in character, the moral ideal as fully as possible under existing circumstances. The failure to do as we ought toward others. In Christian theology, sin is frequently seen as uh, a defiant withdrawal or self-absorption that leads to estrangement and to alienation from God and from others and even from ourselves. I like what Kathleen Norris wrote in her book, Dakota, A Spiritual Geography. She said that as she began to honestly address that uncomfortable word sin as an oblate in a Benedictine monastery, she found an answer to a question that the human potential movement or self-help books of the late 20th century had never been quite able to answer for her. If Thomas Harris's 1967 best-selling book, I'm Okay, You're Okay, was right, uh, Norris thought. Why is the world definitely not okay? Once she began to see the ills of the world mirrored in herself, uh, once Norris understood sin as a useful tool for uh, getting a grasp on the negative side of uh, human nature, uh, her whole perspective changed, her life changed. If there is no sense of sin as personal responsibility, and therefore no way of correcting things when they go awry, then there is a huge problem. But if there is sin, if, if I bear some responsibility, as Alcoholics Anonymous has discovered, for what I say and do and am, then there is a very real possibility for positive correction, for improvement in the quality of my life, and for the possibility of spiritual progress. The eminent humanistic psychologist O. Hobart Mowers said this in his book, The Crisis in Psychiatry and Religion. He said, Although I hold no brief for the metaphysical baggage which the Judeo-Christian ethic has accumulated in the course of 2,000 years, I do maintain that this ethic embodies some perduring verities which we ignore at our deadly peril. So long as a person lives under the shadow of real and unexpiated guilt, he said, that person will continue to hate him or herself and to suffer the consequences of self-hatred. But the moment he or she begins to accept his or her guilt and sinfulness, the possibility of radical reformation opens up and a new freedom of self-respect and peace. So while rejecting Christian theology, Maurer recognizes um, a, a deep, uh, everlasting moral reality with which we must come to terms, a moral law that is within us, that is within everything, rather than imposed on reality. 
It's, it's not like a seal imposed or impressed on a paper document, but rather more like a watermark that is all the way through a piece of stationery that is in it and a part of the paper itself. What has traditionally been defined as sinful behavior can then be understood as that which blinds us to God as ultimate meaning, saps our spiritual vitality so that we have little energy left for real living, leads us into a life of um, denial so that we have no self-understanding or knowledge, keeps us ignorant of life's mysterious depths and is a stumbling block to faith, hope, and love. It is for this very reason that the desert fathers and mothers uh, in the fourth century spoke of the critical significance of purgation to contemplative communion, to the beatific vision, and sought to live transformed lives of humility, simplicity, honesty, and chastity. <clears throat> One thing that should be clear at this point is that sin, or armatia, is not a synonym for sex. The sad truth is that church leaders have often been as obsessed with sexuality as the secular world. However, in neither the Hebrew nor the Christian scriptures uh, is there any such preoccupation. One aspect of sexual morality that does seem to have assumed major significance in the Bible has to do with sex orgies and cultic prostitution and the rites of pagan worship. But ordinary infringement of the sexual moral code does not seem to have generated the kind of excitement it has in modern times. When Paul runs through that catalog of the works of the flesh in his letter to the Galatians, sexual sins account for no more than three of the 14 listed, and these relate for the most part to the sexual exploitation of another person or, again, to idolatrous worship. The Bible is clearly less concerned with who is having sex with whom than it is with repeat, respecting uh, the dignity of everyone we meet, showing love and practicing justice, acting as advocates for the poor, the oppressed, and the outcast. I believe the Bible warns that the day will come when some of those thought to be the most moral among us will be judged to be morally corrupt. Sellouts to the values of greed, arrogance, power, and violence. I'm not suggesting that sexual ethics are not all that important. I, I don't think two teenagers with raging hormones ought to be engaging in sex. I, I don't think it's good for them emotionally, relationally, or spiritually. But it's not the worst sin anyone can commit. It is worse to refuse to pay employees a livable wage 
to deny health care to the poor in order to increase corporate profits, to support torture as a means of creating our own security, to engage in racism or predatory lending. Many years ago, circumstances required that I deal on a rather regular basis with a man who was always talking about how much God hates sin and how sin will bring the wrath of God. What really bothered me, however, was that he seemed so happy that people who, like myself, were just rather garden-variety sinners were about to have severe terror descend on them. His first mistake, uh, mistake in biblical interpretation, was in thinking that explosive anger, vindictiveness, indignation, and capricious rage at having been offended is the same thing as wrath. He had grown up in a family with a physically abusive father, and maybe that was the reason for his mistaking the identity of God. Or maybe he had just read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by the colonial preacher Jonathan Edwards one too many times. Now, St. Paul does say things like, God has not appointed us to wrath. By wrath, Paul means something more theologically nuanced, uh, subtler philosophically and theologically than what we might at first think. Every consequence of resisting of going against the universal current of morality is the wrath of God. Abraham Maslow, the often quoted humanist and, and probably the most positive psychologist to ever live, uh, nevertheless wrote this uh, disturbing sentence. He said, Every evil act, every one without exception, records itself in our subconscious and makes us despise ourselves. That's the wrath of God. Ernie was in his 30s. He had a wife and a young child whom he loved and who loved him. He was a friendly and positive person of, of genuinely goodwill. He was a leader in his church and respected by everyone who knew him and by those who knew him best. He worked as a vocational counselor for the government. Ernie was also legally blind, and so a friend from work would drive him part of the way home each evening and let him off at a commuter lot where he would then catch a ride from strangers that would let him off somewhere near home for his wife to pick him up. One evening, he approached several construction workers who had been drinking in the commuter lot. One of them called Ernie a weirdo because of the strange way that the blindness caused him to move his head. He hit Ernie so hard in the face that the blow knocked Ernie to the ground. They picked Ernie up dusted him off, and tossed him in the back of the pickup truck they were driving. 
The man riding with Ernie in the back of the truck demanded Ernie's wallet, and then, as the pickup careened around a corner at a high speed, threw Ernie out of the pickup to his death. At the trial, Ernie's wife wisely said of this man, who had had his bail revoked for threatening a witness, that this man did not need to fear the witness or her or the police or the district attorney or the judge or the jury. What he needed to fear most, she said, was what he had done with the dignity of his own humanity. And that is what the wrath of God means. E. Stanley Jones, who spent nearly his entire adult life working among the Christians of India and was nominated five times for the Nobel Peace Prize, said, Evidently, we are free to choose, but we are not free to choose the results of our choosing. We are free to choose, but we are not free to choose the results of our choosing. What we do and say and think either gets results or it gets consequences. When Scripture says Christ is a propitiation for our sins, it is not talking about placating an angry God. Rather, it is using a metaphor for how Christ liberates us from the wrongs we have done and the bad choices we have made, both great and small, and liberates us for love and kindness. In Romans seven fourteen through 21, sin is personified as a power which takes up residence within human nature and controls our actions. The difference between sins and sin is not just that the one word is singular and the other plural. My sins are the specific wrongs I do or the good I ought to have done and didn't. Sin is the force within me, whether I explain that force in, uh, psychologically or socially or spiritually or chemically, that both draws and propels me to do the wrong or to leave the good undone or prevents me from doing good I want to do. It's, it's like it creates an abyss between myself and myself. This may be easier to see if, if we imagine how something like greed or hatred or resentment or the desire to control others can consume someone, can take over their life. What I want to say in concluding this reflection, then, is that contrary to what certain celebrity theologians, popular religious authors, or self-help experts say or write, there is no spiritual transformation of the person without acknowledging and without confronting the inner problem of sin. It is just that simple.